Full house we have this evening for the first of the Centre for Criminology All Souls seminar series. Um, if there are people in the audience who aren't on our seminar list or our events list and therefore don't know about the rest of the, the seminar series, there are some um, handouts at the end uh, on, on the far table which tells you about the other seminars. Uh, and if you want to get onto the list, just give me your email at the end of the seminar and I'll get you added to it. Um, so, welcome to the first seminar, welcome to the MSc students who are new, and we hope you enjoy this series. We have for our first speaker, Professor Willem de Haan, from the Department of Criminal Law and Criminology in the Free University in Amsterdam, but also Groningen University too, I think, before, who has uh, enormous expertise over the years in, in various different criminology and criminal justice topics around the fields of violence, crime prevention, um, particularly around criminality and violence in, in the public domain and, and how envir environmental factors affect that. But today, and I think this is partly why we have such a, a large audience, he's going to talk about uh, problems of anachronism and judgment of past international crimes. Uh, so I think that will be of interest to our criminology students and to the transitional justice students who I think are also here. So thank you very much for coming quite a way. <laughs> And there with our technology as well. <laughs> That's fine. Thank you very much, uh, Carolyn, for your uh, nice words of welcome. Um, I'm absolutely delighted and, and honored to be invited to this place of excellence and uh, to see such a large uh, turn up today. I don't think it's for me, it's for the series, and it's the first time, and you're probably curious what it's going to be like. Um, what I'd like to do is to share some thoughts of you on a problem we as criminologists and criminal lawyers face when we're dealing with international crimes, crimes against humanity, that were committed in the past, even in the distant past. Generally, um, the past is not something that criminologists care to think about very often. Uh, we usually study contemporary problems of crime, security, criminal justice, etc. And of course we talk about that and we think about that in the words we have and like I said we don't give that very much talk, talk, uh, thought. It's, um, it's so evident. However, when we study Oh, now is that too far away? I need to do it for you. Okay. Um, this was the purpose. Now we'll go to the next one. <laughs> when we um, do research uh, on atrocities that happened in the past, uh, our research focuses on state crimes of previous regimes. We study old crimes from new perspectives. These are titles from articles and books written in this field. And old crimes from new perspectives already signals what the problem is, namely that we have to be aware of some methodological issues implicated in the use of contemporary concept, criminological concept, to describe and explain historical events. Next one, please. They're going to be a lot. 
Studying atrocities uh, that were committed in the past inevitably confronts us with questions like, can we legitimately ascribe meanings to actions they did not have at the time that these crimes were committed? Or are we then culpable of anachronism? And I'll explain later what that means. Because we are applying contemporary concept to describe and explain historical events. Is it, for example, acceptable to use a concept like crimes of obedience developed to explain a massacre committed in, the, in 1968 during the Vietnam War by American Sergeant William Kelly and his platoon in the village of Malai to describe and explain a similar event, a massacre that took place during the colonial war in the former Dutch East Indies in 18. 94. Next, please. In April 1998, it became publicly known that Hendrikus Kolein, Dutch Prime Minister from 1925 to 1939, had been involved in killings of civilians during the military expeditions in the former East Indies. Historian Herman Langeveld in his biography of Colleen, next one, quoted from letters in which the 25-year-old Lieutenant Colleen tells his wife and his parents about the raid on the palace of the Radja in the town Chaka Negara in 1894 on the Isle of Lombok. Next one. That was the, the opening picture, and, uh, an imagination of the, the atrocity. Well, it wasn't seen as an atrocity well, when this picture was made. This is a picture for school children, and it's from the Colonial Museum. Uh, but it, this is the scene that, that I'm talking about. And the next one, please. So Colleen writes to his wife, I have seen a woman with a child of about six months on her left arm and a long lance in her right hand, storming at us. One of our bullets killed mother and child. We were not allowed to show mercy. I had to have nine women and three children who were asking for mercy, rounded up and shot. It was unpleasant work, but there was no other way. It was terrible. I'll stop now. In a letter to his parents, he goes on. After, after the eighth attack, a few remained who were asking for mercy. Thirteen, I believe. The soldiers looked questioningly at me. I turned around to light a cigar. There were some heartbreaking cries, and when I turned around again, those thirteen were dead, too. Next one, please. Disclosure of these passages led to what historian Jan Blocker called a war on Colleen. Fellow historian Jan de Bruyne argued that Langeveld, the biographer, by accusing Colleen retrospectively of war crimes, had committed a form of ahistoric moralism. From a historical perspective, he argued it is not allowed to apply contemporary values and norms to events that took place in the past. 
even if we find that according to contemporary standards, the Dutch colonial army acted unacceptably, we should take into account that a century ago, public opinion looked at this differently. From a historical perspective, Colijn should thus not be seen as a war criminal, but as a child of his time. Next one. A case in point is that Colijn was knighted with the military Willems order for courage, prudence, and fidelity. In reaction to De Bruyne, historian Jan Blocker argued that the acts of historical figures might have been considered immoral or criminal by their contemporaries, even at the time they were committed. Langeveld, in his biography, in fact, showed that um, at least one eyewitness, a captain in the army, called Colin's acts cold-blooded murder and noted that Colin had a reputation for being one of the worst Atier killers. Therefore, one cannot, one cannot maintain, like de Bruyne did, that what we today consider crimes of war were necessarily seen as normal and acceptable at the time these events took place. One cannot maintain that these acts were not war crimes just because they were not labeled as such at the time they were committed. The next one. Oh, we're looking behind. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, a professor of literary criticism argued that De Bruyne's claim that for his, from a historical perspective, Colin should be seen as a child of his time, revealed a double standard. If only because, quote, no one ever said that of Eichmann or Karachitz. In her view, therefore, Colin is a criminal in the context of any time. In an interview with Colin's biographer, it was suggested that following the standards of the contemporary Yugoslavia tribunal, he, Colin, would have been a war criminal. Even though the claim is clearly, if not intentionally, anachronistic, we could consider this as an hypothesis and also hypothetically, hypothetically verify whether Lieutenant Colin would have been convicted by the ICTY. Such a legal thought experiment could, however, be conceived in two different ways. First, as if the historical atrocities in which Lieutenant Colin was involved had taken place within the contemporary context of former Yugoslavia, or as if the ICTY had hypothetically jurisdiction over crimes committed in the past. In the first case, the question to be answered would be, is there sufficient evidence and are there sufficient legal grounds to conclude that Colin, or rather someone contemporary behaving like him, would indeed be convicted by the ICTY? To answer this question, most relevant is the jurisprudence of the ICTY 
that under certain conditions, a superior, a military commander or a civilian leader can be held criminally responsible for international crimes committed by his subordinates. Now, I won't go into, into the detail of the jurisprudence of the ICTY, but we'll just say that on the basis of the facts and circumstances and supposing the evidence were beyond reasonable doubt, Colline would have been held responsible for crimes committed by his subordinates and been guilty of war crimes. On the basis of the jurisprudence of the ITCY, Lieutenant Colline, as a superior commander, would have been convicted for knowing that his subordinates, subordinates were going to commit these crimes, given that they had already committed similar crimes, possibly under his command, and for failing to, to take necessary and reasonable measures to prevent these crimes or to punish the perpetrators for committing them. This is all ICTY jurisprudence. In the second case, that hypothetically the ICTY had jurisdiction over crimes committed in the distant past, it is arguable that the acts to which Colline admitted in his letters were unlawful under international law at the time of their commission and violated international humanitarian force. Um, we're done talking about the Hague Conventions of 1899 and 1907 and about the Martins Clause um, prohibiting uh, human rights violations. Other legal details, but even uh, when we look at the distant past, there are juridical grounds to consider these acts as war crimes. If anything, the legal thought experiment makes clear that this Lieutenant Colline cannot simply be considered or excused as a child of his time. From a contemporary perspective, he may be seen as a criminal in the context of any time, and the events in which he was involved may retrospectively be seen as crimes of war. Yet, I think we have to move on now that we have that. Yeah. Yet, historians, historians consider it senseless to judge events that receive their moral meaning in a specific historical context on the basis of what we know now. To some, it is a matter of a historic moralism, as we've seen, to others, it is a matter of senseless anachronism. Like a historic moralism, the accusation of senseless anachronism could be brushed aside as merely rhetorical, an effort to disqualify moral criticism and to protect the moral reputation of Prime Minister Colline, his historical legacy. I think that is in part what the war on Colline was about, about his historical legacy and his reputation. However, if we take the accusation seriously, the accusation of senseless 
anachronism. It raises the question, what exactly is anachronism and what's the problem with it? And that's what I'll be talking now. Anachronism, Anna against Kronos time, has been defined as the impropriety of depicting past phenomena in terms of present values, assumptions, or interpretive categories. This is a fallacy which shows a lack of awareness that, this, that the past difference differs in fundamental ways from the present. <coughs> Next one. An example of anachronism is the use of the word Holocaust. It was introduced in 1948 in the de de Declaration of Independence of Israel to capture the special character of the genocide of European Jewry, uh, but only became generally known to the public following the Golden Globe and Emmy Award winning American TV series entitled Holocaust in 1978. In 2001, the German-Israeli historian Dan Diner observed that, I quote, well into the 1970s, wide-ranging portraits of the APOC would grant the Holocaust a modest, if any, mention at all. By contrast, it now, in 2001, tends to fill the entire picture. So just to show one example that we now tend to believe that what happened during the Second World War, the, the kill, mass killing of the Jews had always been seen as and talked about as the Holocaust, which is simply not true. The Holocaust is a fairly recent concept in, in public discourse, even though it, it, it was mentioned one time in the de Declaration of, uh, of Independence of uh, Israel. As a result of the growing popularity of the word Holocaust, for many reasons that I can't go into now, um, it was subsequently used to describe other mass killings, like the famine during and after the Japanese occupation in the East Indies, which was called the East East Indian Holocaust, the next one please. Or more recently, a book about the Spanish Civil War, 1936-1939, which was published entitled The Spanish Holocaust in 2012. Next one. These and other examples of anachronism raise two sets of questions. First, is any form of anachronism senseless? And in fact, senseless anachronism, therefore a pleonasm. Or can we dis distinguish between senseless and sensible forms of anachronism? And second, does each and every form of anachronism inevitably imply a historic moralism? Or if well-founded moral judgments of historical events are possible, after all, that 
remains to be seen. Does this mean that the study of war crimes by historical figures should not simply be dismissed as ahistorical moralism and senseless anachronism, but be taken seriously for what they were, crimes of war, violations of human rights, etc. Next one. In art, literature, and audiovisual media, anachronisms abound. They're, they're ev when you start to look at it, they're everywhere. And a very striking example of such an intentional use of anachronism was televised, was a televised reconstruction of the first day of the war in Indonesia. The, the Dutch army intervened in 1948. It was called a policial action with a euphemism, but it was fighting a war there. What happened in 1974 was brought to the viewer in this program by live correspondents in Jakarta, The Hague, Washington, etc. And it was as if color television already <coughs> existed in those days. It was very, made very lively, very well, very well done. And, and they made very creative use of the way we look at news, consume news, digest news, etc., to get an understanding of what the situation was. I thought it was brilliantly, brilliantly done. Uh, I could give many examples in, in, in art and literature of the deliberate use of anachronisms. Uh, sometimes it's unintentional, uh, but often it is done with a certain purpose, a rhetorical purpose, an artistic purpose. But while in art, literature, and the media, anachronisms are accepted, or at least tolerated, in academia, anachronism tends to be considered a grave error. Although there are some exceptions, <coughs> like there are always some exceptions, and here there are some exceptions too. For example, historian Peter Burke has argued that anachronism may indeed be productive for historians. A very deviant position, I assume. But as an example, he refers to the best-selling book Montaillou, in which historian Leroy Dury described an 18th century village in the south of France the way a modern anthropologist would describe a village in the 20th century very effectively. Anachronisms may, according to Burke, therefore, make the subject matter more interesting by introducing a dramatic human dimension in this way. Next one, please. Generally, however, within, within uh, uh, in history, historiography, they call it, the methodological fallacy of anachronism is considered to be serious and it has even been called the historical sin of sins. Having been caught in the act of committing such a methodological fallacy, which happened to me, I was accused of senseless anachronism when I talked about this thought experiment with the ICTY, makes one feel ashamed for being so stupidly unscientific and showing such a total lack of awareness of the fact that the past differs fundamentally from the present. And when I imagine the situation, 
there that happened, I still feel very uneasy about it. Even, but even historians do not consider every form of anachronism a mortal sin. According to some, for example, definitions of uh, anachronism have in fact set the bar too, too high. Uh, so you could say, so to some historians, this is too dogmatic to say that uh, each and every form of anachronism is a historical sin, let alone the sin of sins. One reason for this, for this is that anachronism is unavoidable because uh, historians uh, are tied to the present and have knowledge which contemporary actors at the time never had. And as a matter of fact, most historical explanations are based on descriptions and classifications that were not available to their objects of research. However, the fact that the historian is tied to the present does not imply that anything goes. It is important to carefully distinguish between types of anachronism that are simply inevitable uh, and anachronism that are not inevitable, but nevertheless may be legitimate or even desirable. Conceptual anachronism is inevitable. If the historian has the ambition to describe and explain past deeds, then description and explanation will demand categories not available to the agents, the historical agents themselves. It would, for example, be legitimate to describe people as homosexuals, even if they lived in a time when the concept of homosexuality had not yet entered the vocabulary. This form of descriptive anachronism would be appropriate, however, only if homosexuality were defined in terms of the behavior of people, having sex with people of the same sex. It would not be allowed to project uh, a modern idea of homosexuality on an earlier period, nor to impose modern values uh, about sexuality on a situation in a pre-modern world. But even such a form of judgmental anachronism could be legitimate as, for example, in the case of violations of human rights. In a discussion of the work of the famous historian Quentin Skinner, he is claimed to have stated that we cannot logically denounce the Chilean junta for failing to uphold basic, basic human rights because they never had any intention of doing so. In response to this claim, it has been argued that of course we can criticize the Chilean junta for not upholding basic human rights and we should because in this case it's perfectly in line with Skinner's thought to condemn the junta's ignorance or uh, maliciousness. This is a, a fairly sophisticated and de detailed debate between Skinner and, 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 and other historians that uh, I cannot go into uh, now and uh, possibly I'm not even 
uh, able to 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 analyze in all its finesse, finesses that um, uh, theoretical historians uh, uh, have. But I thought the debate is interesting because it's it's about such a clear case of a military dictatorship in in South America and the question whether or not we as 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 we speak now, um, are legitimately, uh, could legitimately condemn these historical actors for having done what they've done. In cases like this, anachronistic use of contemporary concepts, theories and perspectives alien to, to historical agents is perfectly legitimate. It may even be desirable because past agents may have deceived themselves about their motives or simply have possessed a more limited understanding of the processes they took part in or witnessed than historians enjoying the benefit of hindsight have today. In other words, anachronistic unfaithfulness to concepts and categories of past agents does not always constitute an historically incoherent interpretation of past deeds. It's some, in some cases, retrospective application of contemporary <coughs> theories and conceptual frameworks to historical events will allow a better understanding of historical events that was possible while they were taking place. Understanding the past in contemporary terms rather than in its own terms can be a manifestation of historical sophistication. And now we go to the, we have that. So, yeah. Now we're going to take a legal perspective on anachronism. And I'd like to say, especially to the students, um, to signal to me, please, when, when I'm losing you in the, in the argument. And don't be shy, you, you're doing me a service. If you stop me and say, oh, wait a minute, uh, I didn't get this. So maybe, maybe just I, I, I stop here for a minute to see um, if it's been somewhat clear to you what I've argued so far. Uh, have, you, have you understood the problem? that you can be humiliated by historians if you don't, <laughs> if you don't watch your step when you're dealing with historical, with historical human rights violations. Uh, we need to be, to be on guard with them. So that's clear, I think. And have you understood why even when you take historians to task that there is, there is leeway there to use contemporary, the contemporary concept that we as criminologists are, are used to work with, to use them to, to understand, to explain, even to describe to some extent what happened in the past. Or is that, how's that? Speak up. You're doing me service. Okay, uh, maybe you're all lawyers then. Then we're going to continue with, with the law perspective now. 
What historians consider as anachronistic from a legal perspective will be seen as a violation of the principle of legality. The operative moral principle in criminal law demands that a person faces criminal charges only for an act that has been criminalized by law at the time the act was committed. No retrospective application of law. In international criminal law, this is an, this is an old legal principle, right? But in, in, in international criminal law, everything is more, more liquid Zygmunt Bauman would say. It's more, you know, it, it's more, more still contested. It's, it's, it's in flux, it's changing. So in international criminal law, it may be admissible to convict, to convict a defendant, even if at the time the, the crimes were committed, these actions were approved, propagated and enforced by the state. And an obvious example for this is that this is at, that at the Nuremberg trials, some lawyers uh, argued in favor of the defendants that the genocidal actions committed during the Third Reich did not constitute crimes because they were not violations of laws in effect at the time and place. During the trial, this argument was overruled, however, by the contrary argument that it was more significant that these actions were criminal under Germany's treaty obligations and pre-existing German law. And ultimately, the Nazis would be tried and convicted also for crimes against humanity, which were not yet officially recognized as a legal category in international criminal law. Since then, in international criminal law, there is a tendency to relax the principle of legality in exceptional situations. In these cases, a violation of the legality principle is seen as not only morally justified, but even legally legitimate. In 1968, a convention of non-applicability of statutory limitations to war crimes and crimes against humanity was adopted, which guaranteed imprescriptibility for war crimes and crimes against humanity. As a result, the prosecution of these international crimes could be no longer restricted by time limits. This was meant for crimes during the Second World War, had to prevent that those had committed them would after all go free, but has since been applied on a much broader scale. In Argentina, for example, prosecutions and trials of suspects of human rights violations during the military dictatorship of 1976, 1983, have been resumed after the Supreme Court of Argentina ruled in 2005 that amnesty laws of the 1990s were unconstitutional exactly because these crimes were imprescriptible. 
Therefore, they could still be prosecuted uh, 30 years or more after the, the events took place. By declaring war crimes and crimes against humanity imprescriptible, the legality principle is somewhat relaxed, you could say. And legal anachronism, uh, which I use as an equivalent for historical anachronism, uh, the legality principle, is no longer anathema. There are situations where it's seen as mor uh, morally acceptable or even even mandatory to relax that principle and to go ahead with prosecution and trial of these horrific crimes, even when they were committed in a distant past. Thank you. But even in cases in which suspected perpetrators themselves are no longer alive, and that's usually where a criminal trial ends. Uh, think of the trial against M M Milosevic. When Milosevic died in prison, that was end of story. And, um, and when we had a, a talk at the Free University with uh, Alphonse Ori, one of the sitting judges on the, on the trial against Milosevic, and I asked him if it would be imaginable to continue the trial for, uh, for, for truth finding, he, he said, well, we are judges, we are not historians. And that was for him, end of story. Now, for historians, that's, that's different than and maybe for criminologists, criminologists and uh, uh, it needs to be different too. Um, because there seems to be room for historical injustices in, in, in international <coughs> law, not so much international criminal law, maybe, but in, in international law. And that is uh, the evolution of what's been called a right to truth, which has now been recognized by a number of human rights treaties. The right to truth grants victims of human rights violations and their relatives a fundamental and imprescriptible right to know the truth about the circumstances of those human rights violations and in the case of death or disappearance, the fate of the victims. The right also holds when the perpetrators have, have died not being prosecuted or being granted amnesty, as was the case in Argentina between 1989 and 1990. Victims of human rights violations and their relatives may claim their right to truth until they die. But the right to truth is also a right of society at large. And because of the public interest in the truth uh, it's not strictly, strictly legal, but, but political, histor historical, moral. You could say that historical imprescriptibility becomes virtually endless. Regardless of how much time has gone by, it will never be too late to ask for the historical truth. In this way, justice can be done concerning what had happened in the past, and this also applies to the excesses 
that took place during the Dutch colonial wars, and more specifically during the, the uh, above-mentioned <coughs> military actions in Lombok in 1894, where, in which Lieutenant Colin was involved. With regard to such painful episodes in the national history, it can no longer be maintained that historical events are to be seen strictly within their own historical context and to be judged exclusively according to the values and norms of the time. If only because painful episodes in history and uncomfortable historical events won't go away. They will continue to haunt us, forcing us to realize that the past is not over yet, because justice has not yet been done. In this way, they live on in the here and now, influencing what we think or try to forget, as well as what we do or don't do. In order to do justice to the past, we need to rethink the notion of anachronism and especially the linear conception of historical time on which it is based, a linear conception to which most historians still <coughs> subscribe. Doing justice to the past requires a radical critique of this dominant concept of historical time. And such a radical critique has been offered by the French philosopher of science, Michel Serre, who considers a linear notion of time to be naive and unrealistic because it only causes problems in how we think about historical processes. As he argues in no uncertain terms, quote, all our difficulties with the theory of history come from the fact that we think of time in this inadequate and naive way. The life and work of historical figures is continually being historized by locating them outside the here and now, creating historical distance, despite the fact that in reality, says Serre, few people and even fewer thoughts are completely congruent with the date of their time. Uh, ideas, norms, values, they float, they, they, they move back and forth in history. You cannot exactly locate them uh, uh, the way uh, it's supposed to be in linear time that first you had uh, the Middle Ages, and then you had the Enlightenment, and then you had the 18th century, and Empire, uh, etc. Uh, and then we had modernity, and then we had late modernity. And it is not, when you look in actual detail, how ideas develop, uh, that is not exactly how uh, history evolves. So rather than located historical acts and events on a linear timescale, Serre proposes a multi-temporal perspective. Next one. The right to historical truth demands that linearity be replaced with a more complex notion of time. 
Uh, and an example of such a complex notion of time is offered by the French philosopher Jacques Derrida, uh, who treats time as spectral, arguing that traumatic historical events like atrocities, massacres, human rights violations in the past, that they do not belong to the past but continue to haunt us as specters, as ghosts, to the present. They won't go away. They stick up their ugly hacks, heads every once in a while when, um, uh, when politicians, whether politicians like it or not. So as long as, as, as justice isn't done, as transitional justice hasn't run its course, as peace hasn't been created, these, 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 these events of the past, they haunt us, they, they won't go away. And to capture that notion that the past is part of the present, Derrida talks about spectral spectral time, the spectral notion of time, where, where past and, and presence are intermingled, if you like. Uh, now, some have countered that Derrida does not, in this way, succeed in escaping linearity altogether. Um, and therefore, it might be preferable to follow Serre in his alternative alternative topological notion of time, for which he has the example of a handkerchief. I quote uh, Michel Serre, if you take a handkerchief and spread it out in order to iron it, you can see in it a certain fixed distances and proximities. If you sketch a circle in one area, you mark out nearby points and measure far off distances. Then take the same handkerchief and crumble it by putting it in your pocket. Two distant points suddenly are close, even superimposed. If further you tear it in certain places, two points that were close can become very distant. As we experience time, it resembles this crumpled version much more than the flat, overly simple, simplified one. According to Michel Serre, time is best be described as a topological sheet which wraps itself around the world. Although it may be true that Derrida's notion of spectral time did not succeed in escaping linearity altogether, and that Serre's supple, adaptable, multi-directional notion of topological time is more realistic, I'd say the, the notion of spectral time may still be useful. Indeed, it reminds us it can shed, shed some clarifying light on the complex and difficult relationship with the past as they emerge, emerge for example, in transitional justice, where we have to deal uh, with the past in these complex ways uh, and, and, and try to, to bring the past and, and the present together in order for people to allow them to, to live on and to live together in the, in the, in the, in the future. Uh, uh, so um, 
maybe in, in, in terms of criticism of linearity, um, there might be some shortcomings in the, in the notion of spectral time. I think the two, for, for us as criminologists, we, we can use both notions just to, to be aware, first, that time is not, not linear and, and, and multidimensional and complex, and secondly, the spectral notion uh, that, that this, this nonlinear notion of time is, is very useful uh, for the specters that haunt us when we're dealing uh, with phenomena of transitional justice. I conclude that it does make sense to anachronistically consider events in the past as international crimes, regardless of whether or not contemporaries could consider them as such as international crimes. Obviously, they couldn't. In order to try to understand the motives of the perpetrators of these crimes, which is what criminologists try to do, uh, we need to locate them in the social, cultural, and political context in which they took place. So there I would go along with the ethnographical, historical perspective that you have to, to also see them as children of their time, uh, that you do try to understand the moral constraints, for instance, that they're, that they're acting within. Huh? But um, to judge the events in which they were involved, there is no reason to strictly limit ourselves to the values and norms that were held at the time. Strictly speaking, and this is philosophers always do that to, 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 to rewind conclusion and, and apply a conclusion to, to the argument itself. So strictly speaking, one could argue that giving up the linear notion of time renders the notion of anachronism itself senseless. Isn't that sophisticated, right? However, <clears throat> I do not want to suggest that we should discard the notion of anachronism entirely by declaring it sen itself senseless. I think it has a function, especially for, for us, for non-historians, because it serves as a reminder that we need to rethink the notion of time in order to do justice to, to the past, especially to the, the painful episodes in the past, in our colonial history, in, in um, uh, the past of military dis dictatorship, in, in, in transitional justice towards the past. Historical truth and justice require the application of both past and contemporary perspectives to historical events, because even <coughs> if historical crimes did not exist, did not yet exist legally, they could not at the time be understood as international crimes. The acts and events which these concepts, to which these concepts refer now, they were historically, they were committed in reality. Yeah? So we cannot just argue, going back to the beginning of this talk, uh, they didn't exist because people didn't have a name for it. You know, these atrocities took 
place in reality. And we have to relate to them in terms of truth and in terms of justice. If only because not to do so also implies a moral stance. Retrospective moral judgments of past events are justifiable if these judgments <coughs> have a sufficient factual basis, are carefully and reasonably made, and offer a contribution to public historical debate. Thus, if re reflexively applied, anachronism do make sense and may therefore be justified in the context of the work that we do in criminology, criminal, criminal law, with regard to process of transitional justice. In short, it does make sense to define past wrongs anachronistically as crimes, even if most contemporaries at the time did not consider them as such. Moral judgments of historical events do not be solely, uh, do events need not be solely based on values and norms that were dominant in the past, but may and in fact must take, take into account considerations that we have as contemporaries without running the risk of becoming <coughs> ahistorically moralistic or senselessly uh, anachronistic. Thank you.